I'm Jonathan Capehart, and welcome to Capehart. A year ago this Saturday, the Supreme Court overturned the constitutional right to an abortion in its ruling in Dobbs versus Jackson Women's Health Organization. And almost immediately, states across the nation set about placing restrictions on reproductive health care. One of those states is North Carolina, where its Democratic governor, Roy Cooper, has been a fierce and vocal opponent of the 12-week abortion ban imposed on that state by the Republican supermajority in the legislature last month. Your zip code should not determine your constitutional rights, but that's where we are right now with abortion. It has come down to battles in state capitals and state legislatures all over the country. In this conversation, first recorded for Washington Post Live on June 15th, Cooper talks more about the abortion issue, Donald Trump's second indictment, and why he thinks President Biden can absolutely win North Carolina, a state no Democratic candidate for president has won since Barack Obama in 2008. And that was the first time since Jimmy Carter in 1976. So, Governor, before we talk about specifics um, of the state and particularly the abortion bill, I, I want to get your thoughts on the federal indictment of former President Donald Trump. Why should the American people care about this? Well, no one should be above the law. And President Trump has said that himself. Uh, people should care, too, because the security of our country here is at stake. Obviously, there was reckless disregard of important secrets of this country that could potentially threaten our security. So I think it's important for a message to be sent that these documents should be uh, kept classified and we'll see how the process plays out. Obviously, the president wants to use this as the central uh, portion of his Republican primary campaign. We'll see how it turns out. I, I think uh, just as in 2020, we're going to find that in 2024, in the general election, our democracy, our very democracy will be at stake again, because if it isn't President Trump, it's a Republican nominee, it will be someone who has come through the MAGA minefield uh, with those same type of positions. And it's going to be important for the, the people of this country to reelect President Biden so that he can finish the job. Governor, was there anything in that 49-page indictment that that shocked you? We've been we've been shocked a lot since since June 16, 2015. But did you see anything in there that just left you gobsmacked? Well, I think it's pretty hard to shock anymore when it comes to former President Trump. But I do think that the the time when he was showing these documents and admitting that they were still secret, top secret, I think he said, and that he could not declassify them now, that's pretty much showing, that's, that's a violation of the law right there. So it's deeply concerning, and clearly we're going to have to have the legal process to play out, and it's a, a tragic occurrence. It's unfortunate that our country is having to go through this. It is a real test for our country and for our democracy itself. But uh, let's hope that people of goodwill can come together and that in 2024, we can do the right thing as we approach the general election. 
Okay, Governor, let's talk about the Tar Heel State, your, your state. Um, according to a Meredith College poll done in February, the most recent poll I could find, um, more than half of respondents said they, quote, wanted to keep North Carolina's current law about abortion access 20 weeks or expand it. So, Governor, why did North Carolina Republicans push something North Carolinians didn't even want? Yeah, that's clearly what you have. And, and you have Republicans unanimously attacking women's reproductive freedom in North Carolina. And let me let me start off by saying, Jonathan, that I've had a lot of bipartisan successes with this General Assembly, with Medicaid expansion and, and, and clean energy and record numbers of jobs that we're bringing to our state. But I had a veto that we could uphold. We had enough Democrats in our state legislature to uphold my veto. That gave good balance. I was able to keep away the, the culture war attacks that this legislature wanted to bring, and we were able to, to get to uh, a, a lot of positive results in, in North Carolina. But when we had one Democrat switch over to the Republican Party, that gave them a one-vote supermajority in each chamber, and it has led to the situation that we're in right now, seeing massive Republican overreach by the North Carolina state legislature. Most of the people in North Carolina did not want this abortion ban. They needed every single Republican in order to override my veto, even the Republicans who had promised to their constituents that they were gonna protect women's reproductive freedom and we're gonna keep the law as it is. North Carolina had been an access point in the Southeast for women's reproductive freedom. And so we had already had a number of promises, but every single one of them voted to override the veto. Now, in that process of trying to protect those votes uh, of Republicans who had promised to protect that freedom, they made a lot of assertions about this very confusing legislation, that it wasn't as restrictive as we were warning that it was. Uh, now that they've overridden this veto and now that it has become law. We're going to take them at their word, and we're going to work for as much access for women as possible as this law is implemented. But there is no question that North Carolinians are energized. You saw thousands of people to come out and protest this. It was done behind closed doors in the middle of the night. It was passed in less time than they give a woman to have to wait in order to to get an abortion, they did it in 40 hours with no allowed amendments and with no notice uh, to the public. Uh, it was absolutely astonishing what they did. And I think the people of North Carolina don't appreciate it. And we're gonna see in 2024, people reacting to this. They have made women's reproductive freedom a major part of the campaign in North Carolina in 2024. And I want to get to North Carolina in, in 2024 in a moment, but I want to go back to the word astonishing that you use, because, and you mentioned the Democrat who switched parties over to, to become a Republican to give that one seat supermajority. What makes that person's party switch so interesting is that when she campaigned for re-election, she, and correct me if I'm wrong, Governor, she campaigned as a pro-choice Democrat. So how does she account for her her party switch and her vote switch. 
you know, it, it is uh, amazing that that happened. It, it's a 60 plus percent Democratic district and her constituents obviously are upset. I, I cannot explain it. You would have to ask her. Uh, I have continued to urge her to support the positions that she supported in the past. Uh, she has fought against attacks on voter freedom. And right now we have real attacks by this Republican General Assembly on people's freedom to vote. Uh, she has stood up to those who wanted to attack women's reproductive freedom. Uh, she has worked to protect the, the rights of LGBTQ plus citizens. So I have encouraged her. I said, look, now that you've switched, uh, stand up to your new party, just like you've stood up to your old party. Unfortunately, we haven't seen that yet. And it is a situation now where this has unlocked potential damage. We've already seen that damage done in this vote on, on abortion. But now with public education, now with voter rights, uh, th there is a lot right now that Republicans are unleashing on the people of North Carolina during this legislative session. And I'm working to bring all of the people of North Carolina together, particularly their constituents, to let legislative leaders know that they need to support public education, uh, that they need to protect people's voter freedom and not attack people uh, who are they're trying to prevent people from voting who they don't think will vote for them. That's exactly what you're seeing. North Carolina has been ground zero for that kind of voter intimidation, but we're going to work hard to try to fight it over the next few weeks. So, Governor, now that the 12-week abortion ban is the law, what recourse, if any, uh, do you or outside groups have to keep it from going into effect? Or, as um, um, uh, an audience member writes in a question, um, John Doherty from North Carolina, who asks, how can we stop the wave of anti-abortion legislation from taking more root in North Carolina? Well, the answer to that question is to win elections in 2024. Uh, they said they were finished for this term, but they said they were coming back next year. And obviously we have seen total abortion bans in other states across the country. I think that is the desire of Republicans in North Carolina. So we need to win elections. We need to get people to the polls and stop this from happening because they have already said they're coming back to this issue. But in the implementation of the law, there's a lot that needs to be done. There's a lot of uh, contradictory language in this legislation because it was written behind closed doors and it was so top secret. I don't think that medical professionals and others contributed to this legislation. And consequently, it's a all going to have to be sorted out with administrators. I think you're going to see potential court battles uh, uh, over it. So we are going to continue to fight for as much access as we can give to women with their reproductive freedom. But in the meantime, we, we've got to win races in 2024. I'm going to be, I know you're going to get to that later, uh, Jonathan, but I'm going to be working to get President Biden elected in North Carolina to elect a new Democratic governor and because I'm term limited in 2024, right. and to break the supermajority in the state legislature. Those are the thing, three things that I'm going to be working on in 2024. So uh, sticking to the abortion issue for one more or question, we're coming up on the year anniversary of the Dobbs, the Supreme Court's Dobbs decision that overturned Roe v. Wade that uh, gave a constitutional right 
to an abortion. Talk about the impact of the Dobbs decision on American politics in general. Has it been a galvanizing for women across the ideological spectrum, do you think? I think uh, clearly for five decades, uh, Roe v. Wade has provided constitutional protections. And unfortunately, I think some people took that for granted. And when Roe was overturned, we, we it really uh, hit people hard. Your zip code should not determine your constitutional rights. But that's where we are right now with abortion. It has come down to battles in state capitals and state legislatures all over the country. Yes, I think people uh, reacted to the Dobbs decision by working very hard uh, for candidates for governor across the state in 2022. I was chair of the Democratic Governors Association, and we know historically how a president's party in the first midterm usually does not do very well. Uh, we turned the tables on that in 2022 and ended up with plus two Democratic governors uh, in, in our nation. Now 57 percent of people in our country are governed by Democratic governors, and uh, they have made a real difference in fighting for women's reproductive freedom. And I think that issue played a significant role, even at a time that you would see normally the inertia pull away from the president's party, we were able to uh, win these governor's races across the country. And that's just one example. I think it's gonna come back hard in 2024. This issue is gonna be a central part, not only of uh, many state elections, but also across the country. I'm going to come, I'm, I, I promise, Governor, we're going to get to 2024. Let's switch gears and talk about, <laughs> talk about education. Um, you have declared an unofficial state of emergency in, in education because of proposals by the Republican legislature to expand school, the school voucher program. Why? Oh, my goodness. Public education is the key to opportunity. It's a, it's a key to overcoming the wealth gap. We have great community colleges and universities in our state. Uh, we have real, we have strong early childhood education. We've been working hard on our 12 K through 12 schools. We need to make sure that we fill the more than 5,000 teacher vacancies in North Carolina. And it's why I proposed an 18% raise for teachers. We have the money to do it. We can balance the budget and do it. Yet this legislature has put forth paltry teacher pay raises while putting in a private school voucher plan on steroids. It is, there are no income limits to it. Uh, it allows people to get thousands of dollars to send their children to private schools. There is little to no accountability where all of this state taxpayer money is going and with their paltry teacher pay raises that they put forth, here's what you're going to have. You're going to have a millionaire who's going to be able to get thousands of dollars from the state of North Carolina to keep a kid in a private academy, while a veteran North Carolina public school teacher is going to get a $250 raise over the next two years. Now, you would think that can't be true, but that's exactly what was in the state Senate budget. Uh, this private school voucher scheme, they've got billions of dollars scheduled to go in it. 
we've seen some some research in some other states about uh, that, that that have had the private school voucher plan that you you don't get that much of a better education when you do this. But in North Carolina, we couldn't know because there are no accountability standards for taxpayer money here. So we're working to try to get constituents across this state to talk to their Republican legislators and let them know we're now having school boards and county commissioners pass resolutions to let them know that rural school districts are going to be hurt the most from this. We've got to fix it and we've got to invest money in public education instead of these private school vouchers. It's just absolutely wrong. So, Governor, let me play devil's, devil's advocate here, because proponents of private and religious schools say they do a good job educating students and uh, take some of the burden off the public schools. Does that argument or rationale hold water for you? It, it doesn't, particularly in North Carolina, when we have no idea how they're doing, because there is no accountability with this private school voucher plan. It's been in place in North Carolina for a while, and it has been for low to moderate income students. I've worked with them to try to put accountability measures in place. They've refused to do it. And now that they have this one vote supermajority in both chamber, they have put forth this plan that that significantly increases the amount of money, says that there is no income cap on it, and, and we can't do it. You couple that with the fact that they have not invested in quality childcare and early childhood education, have not given teacher raises uh, like they should have, uh, that they have put in place tax breaks for the wealthiest North Carolinians and working to completely eliminate the corporate tax, which is going to cause significant problems with funding public education in the future. Finally, what they're doing in North Carolina is they are working to take the formulation of the school curriculum away from the State Board of Education and give it to some appointed political board, we all know where that's going. We've mm-hmm. seen book bans and whitewashing of history and culture wars getting into the classroom. This is why I declared a state of emergency in public education in North Carolina because of the confluence of all of these issues that are being debated right now in the General Assembly These decisions are going to be made over the next few weeks. I want the people of North Carolina to talk with their legislators, to email them, to let them know that they want support for our public schools and our public school teachers, that they don't want culture wars in the classroom, and they want to make sure that our public schools are strong. You you mentioned book banning, which is a perfect segue to the question I'm literally about about to ask you, because there are ongoing battles across the country about what should be taught in classrooms and whether some books should be banned. Just this uh, on June 12th, on Monday, Illinois Governor J.B. Pritzker signed into a law a first in the nation uh, ban on book bans in um, in the state's public ban on schools. Book ban. Say that again. So, sorry, I was just, I, yeah. I didn't, I had, not, I had not heard that, a ban on book bans. Okay. Yeah, ban, a ban on book bans in public schools right. and public libraries. Is this something you would consider trying to do in North Carolina? Look, we don't need book banning in our, in our public schools. Obviously, you need age-appropriate uh, classroom material for our students, but I think it's important for them to 
open their minds. I'm I'm battling a Republican legislature uh, to try and prevent book banning from happening, prevent them from uh, taking science classes out and from whitewashing history. Uh, those are the issues that we are facing right now. And I think it's important for children to get an education that we concentrate on reading and writing and math and stick to the basis, basics and, and keep these cold political culture wars out of the classroom. That's exactly what they are. They, they know how much parents love their children. They know how much parents care about what happens to them in school. And therefore, they want to scare parents about what's happening in the public schools when most of them don't even go to the public schools and don't even know what's going on there. A, a lot of wonderful things are happening in North Carolina public schools right now. It's where I've been going to a lot of them, talking with teachers, talking with parents. Uh, there's a lot of work that we need to do, but we need to invest. You know, finally, Governor, 2024 politics. <laughs> so as I mentioned in, in the intro, only two Democratic candidates for president have actually won your state. Jimmy Carter, and since 1976, Jimmy Carter was the first one. Barack Obama was the second one in 2008, 32 years later. President Biden lost the state in, in the last election by about 1.5 percentage points. Can a Democratic presidential candidate win North Carolina and how? Absolutely. Joe Biden can win North Carolina. North Carolina was Donald Trump's closest win. And I believe it was 1.37% uh, that he won. And actually, he lost he lost two points uh, from 2016 to 2020 in a better environment. He won by more than three points in North Carolina. President Obama called me when we expanded Medicaid in North Carolina. And I told him we needed him to come to North Carolina for the 2024 elections. He said he would. But he also said to me how much he loved our state and how he could have won it in 2012 had they not put a lot of resources in Ohio to make sure that they locked that down. He felt confident that had they gone all in on North Carolina in 2012, that he could have won that time as well. President Biden has put North Carolina in his targeted states, which he should, with the right kind of investment he can win North Carolina. I'm going to work to help him do that. When you think about uh, the transformational investments that have been made in our infrastructure and in our childcare, he's done more in his first two years as president than most presidents could hope to do in eight. We're going to show that along with the extreme nature of the Republican opponent, whether it's Donald Trump or whoever comes through this Republican primary. Demographics are changing in North Carolina. We are an in-migration state. Uh, some of our largest counties are becoming bluer and bluer. I believe that this is the time that it'll happen, and I look forward to 2024. I've got another year and a half as governor. I'm going to work so hard to continue to make this state the great, greatest state in, in the country. You're always welcome to come back, Jonathan. We're, 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 always, we're glad to have you back here with, with your family. But 2024, I'm looking forward to because so much will be at stake. 
So, Governor, as you've mentioned, um, and as I know, you were the head of the Democratic Governors Association. What did you learn about the nation in that role that you didn't know as governor of North Carolina? So I, I think that we have more uh, alike than we are different. We're more alike than we are different across the country. People are caring about the kitchen table issues. They're caring about their jobs. They're caring about their kids getting a good education and getting health care. We see that across the board. But also these issues of women's reproductive freedom and protecting democracy are things that can drive people to the polls that may normally not participate in the process. Putting that all together, uh, I saw governors across the country getting a job done and people re-electing them because they had been good CEOs of their state, but also they were concerned about these other issues and making them come to the polls on a non-presidential year, that was important. Governor, I've got two questions for you and less than five minutes. This first one is from uh, Cynthia Harris uh, in California, who asks, what are your biggest challenges as a Democratic governor in a red state? I think making sure that we keep public education at the front forefront, that we stay away from the culture war issues, and that we're able to work to make sure that we keep our water and air clean and get health care to as many people as possible. Those are the challenges that, that, that I have faced. My veto has helped hold off a lot of the cultural war issues, but I've also worked with Republicans on, on trying to forge agreements on important issues. Medicaid expansion is something that can happen in red states across this country. We've been turning down in North Carolina $521 million a month a month. Not only that, That's people high. are dying because they don't have health insurance. We're now going to be able to take that $521,000 million a month. We're also going to be able to get a, a billion dollar signing bonus, and we're going to get more than 600,000 North Carolinians uh, covered with health insurance, which is going to make a life-changing difference for North Carolina. Those are challenges that we've met. Uh, the challenges that I've talked about earlier are are still ahead. That's for sure. Mm -hmm. and, and Governor, final question: As you've mentioned, you have a year and a half left as governor, and that's because of of term limits. You can only serve two terms. Um, what do you hope your legacy as governor will be at the end of your term? Yeah, I really don't think about it that way it, as legacy. I, I I was elected to to do a job. And, and I, I've taken on this role as a CEO. My mission has been to, to make sure we have a North Carolina where people are better educated, where they're healthier, where they have more money in their pockets and they have opportunities to have lives of purpose and abundance. That, that has been my mission overall. And I think by forging this Medicaid expansion agreement, by getting a Republican legislature to put in clean energy law in place that'll get our power sector to a 70% reduction by 2030 and to get to carbon zero by 2050, uh, that we have gone on, I think, record-breaking job growth, good-paying jobs in North Carolina. I've been able to use our executive authority to make sure that we 
prevent discrimination and give paid parental leave. Positive things are, are happening in North Carolina. I'm going to continue to work every single day uh, during these next this next year and a half to make sure that North Carolina is the best place that it can be and that we can meet that mission. Roy Cooper, 75th governor of the great state of North Carolina. Governor Cooper, thank you very much for coming to Capehart on Washington Post Live. I enjoyed it, Jonathan. Thank you so much. Thanks for listening to Capehart. It's edited by Nick Roberts. We'll have new episodes for you every Thursday. I'm Jonathan Capehart. You can find me on Twitter at CapehartJ.